We're doing a two-segment series titled something like America's Too Lazy and Selfish to Deal with Its Mental Health Problems. Part one was the 988 hotline where we're going to solve teen depression, anxiety, and suicide, and the declining American lifespan by having people call a hotline number and talk to a, a nice, hopefully empathic human being for a couple of minutes. And that's going to solve our earthly problems involving community, purpose, the economy, and the environment. And obviously, we think that's implausible. I just want to read something that shows how implausible that is. Uh, the U.S. National Academy of Sciences did an analysis of the rising mortality for U.S. adults. It's most steeply uh, rising for white adults with secondary education or less. It also affects inner city people. The rise is largely attributable to deaths of despair, which are caused by suicide, poisoning by alcohol and drugs, with strong contributions from the cardiovascular effects of rising obesity. The United States National Academy of Sciences report notes that mortality is decreasing in a control group of 16 wealthy nations. That's Western Europe, Canada, Australia, and Japan. But it does not ask what protects those nations from despair. The 16 wealthy nations provide communal assistance at every stage, thus facilitating diverse paths forward and protecting individuals and families from despair. The United States doesn't think that way. For reasons both historic and in terms of our outlook, Americans think, well, it's brain disease. That's why people commit suicide. That's why they're depressed. That's why they're anxious. Mm. And so why don't we simply um, oil up their brain? Um, and it turns out we've been doing that since the 1990s and earlier. And the results are in. And before I talk a little bit about what those results are, um, we now are emerging into a realm of psychedelic therapy. Um, people are taking, well, they're taking mini LSD trips. They're using a variety of psychedelic oriented drugs to address depression, anxiety, and results have been promising and helpful. We've gotten, there's indications that it can be very helpful with people in peak periods of despair. Um, and that possibly it's a therapy that can be introduced briefly. It's, I mean, you're not gonna take psychedelics we're not Timothy Leary, uh, you know, nightly or weekly for years. We're using it in a brief time span. And so the New York Times had an article and um, it's the, sort of the title of the article means it doesn't matter what you experience. 
Dr. Olson and others think that psychedelics effects on the brain or give them their therapeutic properties, not the trip they take people on and the subjective experience of the drugs can be removed while their impact on depression remains. And here's the conclusive sentence. Research conducted in rodents and petri dishes over the past few years suggests this may be possible. Yeah. You have a reaction to that, Zach. I can see your uh, little bit itching at the microphone. I just, I remember uh, uh, Skinner did a lot of experiments on rodents that he thought must extrapolate also to to all human beings. And um, some people still believe in it, but it turns out people aren't as one dimensional as animals and possibly even animals aren't as one dimensional as Skinner attributed to them. The Well, the animal, the rodents and Petri dishes, yeah, doesn't come as a high recommendation, but the elimination of subjective experience, does that remind you of anything? Yes, of course. <laughs> I mean, that's the disease, that's the disease model in full effect. And we just, we've, you and I have discussed on our podcast, um, Thomas Insull was the head of the National Institute of Mental Health for 13 years. And then he retired in, 19, in 2017 and he wrote a memoir. And the New York Times described it this way, the nation's psychiatrists take stock with frustration in a new book, Thomas Insel, who led research into psychiatric disease for 13 years, says that advances in neuroscience have yet to benefit patients. And his book calls out a paradox, which is even worse. The United States, a country that leads the world in spending on medical research, also stands out for its dismal outcomes in people with mental illnesses. Indeed, over the last three decades, even as the government invested billions of dollars in better understanding the brain, those outcomes have deteriorated. Yeah, this isn't exactly it, but there's a profundity associated with psychedelics that, you know, people imagine that it's doing something and dislodging something in your brain. And in a way, I mean, you're opening your mind to an experience that you haven't possibly considered or allowed yourself to have before. And I think that's the allure and possibly the utility of psychedelics. But I think that same profundity allows, kind of opens the doors, kind of like Carl Hart was saying, uh, drug exceptionalist. Well, my drug does this great thing. Is it better than your drug? Psychedelics are seen as it does something to the mind that must be good and uh, have lasting effects or, or must be bad depending on who you're talking to, that has lasting effects on brain chemistry one way or another. And when you read about them, they often propose them as specific replacements for antidepressants. I right, mean, an article right. heading will be, uh, patients on whom anti for whom antidepressants were unsuccessful showed that they succeeded under psilocybin or you know some other formulation. And in American thinking, that's, oh, that's a better drug. I'll go to this, pick it off the shelf. I'll pick off psilocybin or ketamine instead of whatever leading antidepressant, right. Zoloft, et cetera, I was using. Right. 
And they totally miss the message. And ironically, um, a lot of this is, some of this, this was a movement that was happening, but a, a best-selling kind of middle, a older than middle-aged, middle-class person named Michael Pollan wrote mm -hmm. a bestseller called How to Change Your Mind. And he was a guy who never took drugs, but now I guess in his 60s or somewhere, he said, I started taking psychedelics and I just came to new ways of looking at my life and thinking about myself and my relationships and my problems. It's an experiential book. Yeah. Um, it's about how you can open your mind to new solutions of ways of dealing with problems. And in a way, we do the life process program. We inquire with people, people announce to us, they describe to us what their life is like, what barriers they're encountering. And then the coach discusses and interacts with them in a way. So they reflect on what the sources and what the options are as alternative ways of dealing with those problems. Obviously, we're an online program. We don't prescribe any kinds of medication. And we don't personally, you know, encourage psychedelic or antidepressant use. We have our own way of dealing with things. And so I just, Olson is going back to the tried and true American solution for life problems. We don't want you to have to sit around and think about your life and come up with a new way of dealing with it. That's too arduous. Um, we certainly in America are not going to make any kind of effort to improve your life. We're not going to be able to, I mean, we make noises about it, but we're discouraged to improve your schools uh, decrease violence in inner cities, um, improve people's connectivity to one another, uh, work on family life. Those are monumental things. They're difficult things. And so we come, we've come up with a drug solution. It so happens that for the last three decades, since the 1990s, we've been relying on drug solutions. We've been relying on the wrong drugs. We've got better drugs, ketamine and psilocybin, for goodness sake. And you don't have to think about your life. You take the drug, it does some magic key in your brain, pazam, depression is gone. You don't have to either reflect on what it is that was impacted, impacting your life to make it depressive, or even really think about what am I going to do differently in my life? How am I going to adopt a purpose in life? How am I going to find a way of relating to other people? How am I going to become a member of my community? All of those effortful things, which require self-exploration on the one hand, practical steps on the other, and engagement with other human beings, forget all that. You don't need to do that. And we're then 
return to the reductive fallacy, which Thomas Insel was the embodiment of for 20 years, we said, oh, um, mental illness and addiction are brand, and which Nora Volko of the NIDA still says, uh, mental illness and addiction are brain diseases. Um, all we have to do is inject something or impact the brain chemistry in some mysterious way that we haven't yet encountered, and we can eliminate your mental illness or your addiction. Now, we're in favor of sort of a laissez-faire. We're, we're like libertarian on this issue in a way. Uh, people taking the substances that they want to take for reasons that they can articulate or understand for benefit, we're all in favor of that. Okay, you like to feed me questions sometimes that you already have an answer to, but you want to hear me say it. I'm going to, I'm going to turn the tables on you. Very practical example. And I, it got me thinking while, uh, while you were talking about this. So I'm a musician and I used to play for, the crowds I used to play for were like hundreds, sometimes even thousands of people. So the idea, the idea of going and mingling with the crowd out front of the stage is that, that was kind of nonsense. You'd, it'd be weird to do it almost. Now I, I still play, but they're not these big shows. I'm not playing at big venues anymore. I'm playing more at bars and nightclubs. And a lot of times my family and friends will come down. This has been the last three, four years, five years maybe. And I still have this habit of, being um, antisocial after I play. I'm sort of in it. Um, and so when I stop playing, even though I have family and friends that would like to talk to me, I would go to the green room and I would get teased for it. And people would say, what's going on? What do you have groupies in there or something? Or, and I wanted to, um, I realized I was doing it. This is a few years ago. And I thought, well, how can I make myself, I would like to make myself more talkative. It's just kind of hard to get myself out of that zone where I'm playing music. I started having a, a shot and a beer and it was all the alcohol I drank all night, but I would have it as soon as I started playing. And for some reason that helped me, I had the idea that it was going to help with this. With that, I was a little bit loosened up and I would always go socialize with people after I played. That sounds trivial, but I don't have the shot and the beer anymore. And I'm still able to go, so, uh, you know, sometimes I do, I guess, but I don't need it. It's not something I'm relying on to make me more social. All of that being said, why do you think it is that the shot and the beer helped me be more social? Well, you we could take get... one step backwards in your description. By the way, I I like the way you avoid me asking you provocative questions. <laughs> you, just, you know, screw the provocative questions. Here's what I'm going to say. Um, uh, no, so but I'm, ask, I'm asking you the question, though. Uh, you know, well, why, okay. why... Uh, it was a long question, but you had a prior engagement with heroin and you might imagine that heroin so served some perhaps some of the same functions in terms of relaxing you and being able to deal with other people <clears throat> except that was a turned out to be what we would call a negative addiction so what you know, all addictions are negative that was a life challenging right, right. substances. So what you've done, you've shown, I, I, I mean, if I were to summarize your experience, you would say, well, I've experimented with substances as a way of helping me deal with the world. And the substances I've relied on are world famous. I mean, uh, heroin is now famous because it's an opioid mm -hmm. and people rely on opioids to deal with life. 
And well, alcohol has been throughout history. And what you're describing is, we, what we describe in the Life Frost program is a way of transitioning from use and reliance on a substance as a way of mediating your experience to dealing directly with the experience, perhaps with some touching upon a substance. I mean, a lot of people drink to be sociable. In our view, both in your life, your life experience and in our approach to the life process program, we never say, oh, this substance, whether it's regarded as an addictive substance or a therapeutic substance, you know, heroin or addictive drug, painkiller versus therapeutic drug, anti-anxiety drug or antidepressant. And that's the solution. We always view it as a transitional or a vehicle as offering insight and a path towards self-regulation and self-engagement in the world. And what, Ols what Olson with psychedelics and with what Incel with neuropsychiatric drugs were both proposing in a strange way was what at one point in your life you were more inclined to do addictively with drugs. Oh, here is the solution. We're so opposed to that. We see that as a negative outcome. And what Olson is proposing and what Intel spent 17 years promoting use of drugs as life solutions, we're saying can never work. It's the wrong way of thinking. And it's what has caused what is now an American deluge of drug deaths and negative mental health outcomes. But so that's, that's very, I mean, that's my answer too. So we've talked about this before. Sometimes thinking we are a CBT kind of based program we take a cognitive behavioral sort of approach and therapeutically sometimes thinking can affect your behavior or influence your behavior and sometimes your behavior influences your thinking about things and so in this case I knew I wanted to be more social but I was a little uncomfortable so I did something that I knew was I sort of did a very quick calculation of damage control you know the benefits or costs of drinking thought about the amount that I would be able to drink reasonably and knew that it kind of loosened me up and soon became habituated to this experience of being more social, drug or no alcohol or no alcohol. And that is how I want to tie it into that's our framework. You know, you can use drugs as a utility, but the idea that drugs are some sort of a, you know, button that you push that rewires yourself for some reason, for, you know, no other reason except the drug that's doing it is absolutely backwards. And as you say, it just can't possibly work. That will never work. And I want to recall one other comment you've made to close out this section. Um, we're libertarian and permissive about the drugs that people rely on because it, you can evaluate yourself and we help people do that in LPP, whether a person's reliance on something, a substance is more positive or more addictive. And you're saying we don't rule out any substance for its potential positive effects or its negative effects. Uh, we don't say, oh my God, you're drinking to be social. 
we ask, well, how is that working for you in both terms of possible negatives and in terms of positives? Hmm. So that's our approach to harm reduction, which is life enhancement with and without drugs, but always with purpose, engagement, and basic life values. You tied it up perfectly. Thank you, Stanton. Good talking to you, Zach. Bye now.